0: Hey, welcome to episode three of Matt Drewblood's baseball podcast. I don't know. We'll find something catchier for it, but for now, Uh, today is, geez, what is it? Wednesday, October 24th, the morning after game one of the 2018 World Series. You know what? Let me get this out of the way, because as of today, I think, the podcast is available via Apple Podcasts, and if anyone is actually listening to it as a result of that or through any other channels welcome to anyone uh i'm gonna get some questions about the audio and what all the (laughs) ambient noise is so just to fill you in i am recording this outdoors and that is where i will record just about all of these i think um i'm gonna try to stay out of any wind and away from too much extraneous sound but Some is inevitable, so that's all you're hearing. I wrote uh, about Game One of the World Series for Baseball Prospectus from kind of a tactical angle. That was we have coverage of each game of the series, so come back and check it out at BaseballProspectus.com. But we do that from four different angles: one that kind of runs down the highlights of the game, one that isolates a particular moment. And then we have previews of, of each game and sort of setups with running some of the things through our Bacota Odds tools, uh, and then an assessment of the tactics, sort of the strat-omatic, uh side of the game. And game one, just because of the nature of these two teams, and especially the Dodgers, God, they are, they are a rich source of this kind of material. So I went pretty deep. I'm not going to run through that whole piece if you want to read it. Again, head over to the site and check it out Um, but a couple of really interesting things that jumped out last night one is uh, obviously the Dodgers erred in slotting Brian Dozier into the lineup at all and particularly as their leadoff hitter he is so obviously broken at this stage that I think they need to if not remove him entirely from their uh, positional rotation for the rest of the series at least sit him on the bench keep him there even when a lefty is starting and use him sparingly in in whatever way uh, is absolutely necessary he is whether it's physical or mechanical or mental or some mixture of the three and it's probably a mixture but we do know he's dealing with a knee injury that playing through it is just a bad idea but this is a guy on the cusp of free agency so that's what he's doing he's ineffective at the plate he was very ineffective in the field last night and really has been for much of the season. I, I live here in Minnesota. I got to see him uh, quite a bit before the Twins traded him, and he was not the same guy as a defender uh, as much as at the plate. Last night, there were two double plays. that They were tough double plays, uh, sort of slowly hit balls, kind of a slow developing play because of the defensive positioning uh, prior to the batted ball. But Manny Machado made great plays each time and set Dozier up to have a chance to turn it, and he was not quick on the turn, and he got nothing on either throw. And as a result, two innings were extended, and three of the Red Sox' first you know, initial five runs scored on, you know, on the backs of those, not even mistakes, but just shortcomings. And then uh, the fifth of those first five uh, by Rafael Devers, He cracked an RBI single through the right side. It's not a play that you absolutely have to have your second baseman make. It was certainly hit hard, and this isn't to take anything away from Devers, but Dozier didn't even come close to it, and it felt like a ball that a really good defensive second baseman gobbles up and possibly uh, at least knocks down, possibly gobbles up and throws Devers out on. So he made all the difference last night. I hope that having seen that, this was the first start that Roberts had granted to Dozier in the entire postseason. Uh, I think he was maybe gambling on some adrenaline kicking in with Dozier's first trip to the World Series, some of the time off uh, that he's gotten just by not playing as frequently throughout the the playoffs and the few days of rest before the series. He was hoping to get a fresher Brian Dozier and something closer to what the Dodgers had hoped they could tease back out of him. Now that it's apparent that that's not there, you sure hope he's not going to be back in the lineup tonight. But other things to sort of touch on, it's so interesting because this is such a modular collection of position players, an incredibly uh, versatile one. I know Ben Lindbergh has written about this for The Ringer, that they are, in some quantitative ways, the most modular, sort of flexible, versatile team ever Um, and that is partially in the personnel part of it too is just in the usage Uh, this is a team that is utterly unafraid of the pinch hitting penalty we saw them pinch hit four times last night and that's not even unusual at this stage these Dodgers this year set the record for most pinch hit plate appearances by any team since 1947 last year's team was right on their heels the 2016 team Uh, was not too far behind that. And essentially, with each season, Roberts is getting better at preparing his charges to pinch hit. Their OPS as a team when pinch hitting has risen from a calamitous number, something in the 560s in 2016, to 719 last year, to 732 this year. About 30% better than an average team as pinch hitters. They're not afraid of the pinch hit penalty. They're pretty good at fighting back against it. So you're going to see them flip out a lineup again, just the way they did last night. I expect them to do it again in game two. As the Red Sox run these left-handed starters out there, the answer from the Dodgers is going to be to run out a very right-handed lineup and then boom, 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 they're going to try and bring in Cody Bellinger jock peterson max muncie and yasmani grandal because the red sox other than eduardo rodriguez who pitched last night briefly but you expect will be called upon more for a long long relief sort of stint in game three or game four so he may be off the table tonight and then it comes down to the red sox do not have a left-handed reliever that the that the dodgers need to be afraid of um now, last night, I felt as though Roberts still managed a little bit with a fear of the wrong matchup for Rodriguez, uh, and you saw it in the fifth inning. I don't know if he was stuck in a National League mindset or what, but the Dodgers had that chance to score. They, I believe that was uh, with two on, and they got to this stage where David Friese was due up, and... And Alex Cora lifted Chris Sale in favor of Matt Barnes, actually for Justin Turner. Then Turner got on, now freeze was due. And, Cor- and Roberts let him hit, presumably because he didn't want to have to flip freeze out of the game for Bellinger in that spot and potentially have Bellinger locked into, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, for Max Muncie in that spot and then have Muncie locked into a matchup with Rodriguez later in the game, something like that. He held off. He let Freeze bat. It wasn't a terrible matchup, honestly, for Freeze, who's been a good hitter against right-handed pitching over his career. Somewhere, From somewhere has come the reputation this particular fall that he's just a lefty masher. That isn't true. It's not true now, and it's never been true of him. Uh, He is a good hitter against breaking stuff, a good hitter to the opposite field. It was fine to let Freeze face that righty. Um, It didn't work out at all. He struck out and looked terrible doing it but that, is, that wasn't necessarily an error in judgment it was interesting when later in the inning Roberts let Bellinger pinch hit for Chris Taylor thereby allowing him to flip Bellinger into center field and slide Kike Hernandez over to left that made it easier for him you know, rearranging the lineup defensively after that half inning but I felt like I still feel like Max, Muncy is a slightly better hitter than Bellinger at this point. And honestly, he's a little less susceptible to left-handed pitching than Bellinger is. I was curious to see Muncy not get a shot in that fifth. And then, of course, in the seventh inning, he did get a chance, but with a little bit lower leverage, he kind of started a rally um, when he finally pinch hit for Dozier. Um, I don't think Roberts particularly likes the idea of Muncie playing second base. I know that they are a little hamstrung if Dozier isn't really available as their second baseman. They essentially have to have Taylor or Hernandez at second. And then, you know, Muncie maybe, but preferably not, kind of thing. It starts to lock in some options where they aren't quite as flexible as they thought they were if Dozier isn't who they were hoping he would be. Um, Still, I thought they could have been a little more aggressive about, you could have pinch hit twice in that fifth inning, or at least pinch hit Muncy, even knowing that it would mean flipping Freeze out of the game going into the next half inning so that you could get Bellinger out there. Um, We'll see if Roberts is any more aggressive tonight. Again, it felt like that was the smart thing to do and maybe he hesitated to do it just a little bit because he didn't want to empty his bench too early but in the American League that's just not as big a deal Um, especially given that you've got a second catcher that you're going to bring into the game at some point but Austin Barnes doesn't have necessarily have to leave the game at that point either he's a guy who could go out and play some second base if you needed him to so we'll see if Roberts makes any adjustments there I thought the biggest mistake he made was not any of those pinch hitting decisions, but walking JD Martinez in the bottom of the seventh, which is where things really got away from the Dodgers. Uh, Pedro Baez had his high fastball really humming, got a strikeout on either side of Martinez's non plate appearance, uh, with the high heat, the high heat from Ryan Matson is exactly what it punched Martinez out in a big spot two innings earlier. Um, to decide to walk Martinez sort of forced Roberts into a a decision eventually between leaving Baez, who's very susceptible to left-handed batters in to face Rafael Devers or doing what he did and going and getting Alex Wood. And that's when Cora flipped uh, Devers out for Eduardo Nunez, which isn't a terrible matchup from the Dodgers perspective. It just played out terribly, but they kind of put themselves in that bad position by being too afraid of Martinez at a point in the game when they were already trailing by a run and they shouldn't necessarily have been trying to minimize the likelihood of the Red Sox scoring just once more as much as they should have been trying to minimize the likelihood of exactly what happened, putting an extra runner on base and having that guy come around, whether it was a homer or some other big hit later in the frame. So some adjustments need to be made, but it was a really interesting cat-and-mouse game between two really good managers, and again, watching the Dodgers play right now is one of the most fascinating strategic exercises we've seen in in many years just because of all the different things that they can and even actively want to do with their position players throughout a game. One way that the Red Sox neutralized that last night that I just wanted to touch on very briefly uh, was Joe Kelly who came in and sort of mowed the Dodgers down during his turn. And uh, a significant part of that was with his changeup. It's a pitch that he really had not used. Last year, I think he threw it all of maybe 35 times, something really sparing. This year, it's become much more a part of his repertoire. It's even something he's occasionally comfortable throwing against righties. And some of that is down to pitch design. Uh, He's gone into the lab with that changeup and he's actually ratcheted down the spin rate on it about 150 rpm. That's a meaningful difference. It, with a change-up, you don't necessarily want high spin. In fact, low spin, if it can be effective with a high arm speed, is more, more optimal. Um, you're giving the surface of the ball a little more time to interact with the air on its way to the plate. I'm not an expert on all the physical forces involved there, but you could see it in you know, the adjustments he's made to the spin axis and then just getting that lower spin with still a very, very fast arm on the pitch. It's become really effective for him, and it's one reason why the Red Sox are even comfortable going into this series. We're even comfortable going through the trade deadline without making a trade for uh, anything like a lefty specialist. Joe Kelly can come in and get lefties out pretty consistently. We'll probably see Cora continue to try to do that with him throughout the rest of this series. Let's see. uh, Sorry. I just wanted to extend quick kudos to Kike Hernandez, by the way, because he's an underappreciated presence in the Dodgers lineup. And I think by now, most people who follow my work know that I have a particular soft spot for some of the great Puerto Rican players that Are populating the major leagues right now. Hernandez might be the most underrated of all of them in the energy he brings, the versatility, uh, the willingness to do a lot of different things. He caught a little flack for not making a couple of plays in the field last night, but there were two particular plays that I thought he made fairly brilliantly. Uh, First on Martinez's deep smash that turned into a double. Uh, What was that, the fourth inning perhaps? At any rate, it was high off the center field wall, off the garage door, in dead center. A truly elite defensive center fielder might have raced back and caught that ball, might have had the instincts and known uh, how to measure their steps and get back there and make that play. But Hernandez isn't that and has never been asked to train to be that. He's just not given enough reps in center field to expect him to make a play like that. What he did do, watching it go, was... I thought make a really quick instinctual adjustment and play it very cleanly off the wall. Manny Machado sort of drifted out past second base towards shallow center on that play to act as a second cutoff man if Dozier couldn't handle it or if the throw went awry. If he is committing himself just to, you know, being near, maybe even on second base as Martinez rounds it there, and if... uh, if he's in position that way, Dozier had the ball and a chance to throw Martinez out when he slipped going around second because Hernandez played it perfectly off the center field wall there. And then later in the game, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was that hit it. Might have been Mookie Betts. Someone hit a hard line drive after Hernandez had moved to left field that looked like it was going to split the outfielders for a double. Hernandez got over, cut that ball off, You know what? Betts was the runner at first. And not only did Hernandez cut it off and hold the batter to a single, but then he pegged it into third and kept Betts at second. In the moment, that was a big play. Again, the Dodgers weren't able to convert that defensive, you know, little subtle bit of defensive brilliance into anything particularly valuable. But uh, Hernandez made a couple of nice plays, and I think it's an argument in a weird way. For giving him the start at second base tonight, or in you know in left with uh, Chris Taylor starting at second, whatever the case might be, it's a reminder that Hernandez is a really valuable chip in this or sort of cog in this Dodger machine. Even if he is not in any one element of the game, they're most productive. Wanted to touch quickly too on Cora's decision to. Used Nadie Ivaldi for an inning last night. Obviously, Evaldi looked great. He's looked great every time. He's taken the ball during the postseason, including, I don't know if this is two or now three relief appearances. He comes in throwing incredibly hard. He's got that great cutter that he's really honed and made a big part of his repertoire this year. No pitcher, according to our called strike probability statistic at Baseball Prospectus, which is just on average, how much of the zone is this pitch getting? If a batter took it, what would be the likelihood of a called strike on average given all the locations that they throw the pitch to? No pitcher throws their cutter more in the strike zone than does uh, Nadia Evaldi this year. It's 61%. That means he's really attacking the zone with it. It's a vicious pitch for batters to try to contend with knowing that he can reach back for 101 with the four-seam heat. That pitch, it's not elite in terms of movement or anything, but it's hard. It plays off of his other stuff well, and the way that he can attack the zone makes it pretty devastating. Now, what really grabbed me, though, was Ivaldi is going to be a free agent at the end of this year, and we're seeing the Red Sox ride him like a guy who's going to be a free agent at the end of this year. They pushed him very hard uh not just not necessarily in terms of pitch count within a game or anything like that but to ask him to make a few starts and he's going to have at least one later in this series and then to stack relief appearances on top of that there's an ethical question i think we need to take a little more seriously at some point soon um it's it's tricky because i do think One way for a pitcher to make a ton of money as a free agent is to go out there during October, take the ball as often as they possibly can, and demonstrate dominance while doing so. Uh, But this is the third year in a row that we've seen a team sort of take advantage of a pitcher being in that position and really ask them to do something they would not normally do. The Cubs did that in 2016 with Aroldis Chapman. We saw how he broke down at the end of Game 7 of that World Series, but Throughout that postseason, they were asking him to pitch at times and for durations that were not at all typical for him. And the Dodgers, just last year, had Brandon Morrow pitch literally every game of their, what was it, uh, 15, maybe even 16 postseason games. And Morrow wore down by the end of it. Now, both Chapman and Morrow went out and signed very healthy contracts in the preceding winter Uh, but both have broken down a little more since then it's not as though Morrow was ever a bastion of health and Chapman is a guy who's entering his 30s now and throws 104 there are going to be breakdowns in health Uh, but it's it's worth exploring whether teams should have the right to ask an unusual thing like this to push a pitcher exceptionally hard right on the cusp of their own free agency Again, it can be good for them in the short term, but bad for them in the long term because they'll be sort of unpopular with whatever new team they sign with. If this continues to happen, we're going to see these pitchers sort of discounted on the market as teams realize, well, he just the odometer got awfully high there. Do we really want to commit big money to him? Things like that are going to start happening. It's going to be a point of frustration and conflict. I don't know how we would go about regulating it away, but it's at least an interesting thought experiment because Uvalde is going to probably make quite a bit of money this winter, unless he shreds his UCL again, you know, sometime during this series and given his health track record, that's not out of the question. Last bit. I just want to spin it forward a little bit and talk about tonight's game for what few of you might listen before the game actually happens. Uh, Another interesting pitching matchup. I pointed out on Twitter yesterday sort of the fascinating differences, you know, very stark differences between Chris Sale's stuff and that of Clayton Kershaw. Um, just that Sale works with a fastball that fades away from a right-handed batter almost more than any other pitcher in the league. Um, he relies a ton on swinging strikes, but he doesn't get a lot of called strikes with the pitch. Kershaw is very much the opposite. He's got more cutting action, more boring into a right-handed batter with a four-seamer than almost any other pitcher in the league. Uh, He doesn't get a lot of swinging strikes with the pitch at this point, now that it's not humming in at 95 anymore. But what he does get are a ton of called strikes, the highest rate of called strikes per pitch taken of any pitcher in baseball. And that's one dichotomy. Another is in their sliders. I mean, they both have famous sliders, but Sales is this enormous sweeper. Whereas at this point, Kershaw's is very much as much a cutter as it is a slider. Uh, it, it hums in close to his fastball velocity on average, doesn't sink much. In fact, sinks less than any other slider in the league for how often it's thrown, uh, but gets a ton of ground balls the way a cutter does when it's really working. It gets to the ends of left-handed hitters' bats, it gets in and jams right-handed hitters, uh, those kinds of things. Tonight, we have two pitchers who, on their face, are considerably more similar. Uh, At this point in his career, David Price has pretty average stuff in virtually every way. He's got a deep repertoire, but not one single pitch in his arsenal really stands out at this stage. Han Jin-Ru has a little more maybe a little more juice left in terms of stuff that plays above average, especially with his curveball. But it's interesting the way they both sort of... They have very similar stuff from a physical perspective, a movement, speed, those characteristics. They use it very differently. Uh, Rue is a real zone pounder, an attacker, but also he relies on his command. He stays very much at the edges of the strike zone, more than most pitchers in baseball. You'll find him operating with his cutter, attempting essentially to get early swings and early contact and trying to get ground balls with it. Price, with essentially the same kind of stuff, is in more of a power pitcher's mentality from back when he had more powerful stuff and pitched with that in mind. You know, he used to rack up 250 strikeouts a year. It's easy to see why he still thinks this way and operates this way on the mound. But he's now got a cutter essentially at the front of his repertoire. It doesn't miss that many bats, you know, correcting for, you know, if he and Rue threw their cutters exactly the same way, his would probably miss fewer bats than Rue's does. But in fact, it misses more because he'll start by trying to lead you out of the strike zone and hope that you chase the pitch and batters do chase it more often than they chase Ryu's when he pitches outside the zone because it's just not what ryu is trying to do those are mostly mistakes and batters can pick them up easier price will try to lead batters out of the zone and then either catch them sleeping or you know with a especially his curveball he loves to throw his curve for strikes and try to get called strikes especially called third strikes when he can uh or he'll try and gas you up with a high fastball, something like that, to, to punch you out. Ryu is very forward, very much attacking early in the count. He's very good at inducing weak contact. Price, again, with a, a strikingly similar arsenal, is still thinking like a power pitcher. I'm not sure one approach is better than the other, but it's really fascinating to watch two guys who operate very much Uh, operate with the same tools, approach the job extraordinarily differently. Now, I don't want to get too deep into breaking those down because, as we saw with Sale and Kershaw last night, these guys could be gone by the fifth inning. These are two really good offenses. They can do everything that an offense should be able to do, and it makes it so hard on any pitcher who comes into the game, especially a starter trying to turn the lineup over a couple of times. But for as long as that drama lasts, it'll be an interesting one to watch. I think this is a really important game to the Dodgers, who I picked to win in six games before the series started. If the Red Sox sweep these first two at Fenway, that starts to look shakier. So we'll see how tonight goes. Uh, You can follow, I don't know how much I'll be tweeting during tonight's game or anything like that, but I will be around. I'm at M.A. Trueblood on Twitter. You can find me at baseballperspectus.com. I will be writing again about Game 4, and if it goes that far, Game 7, from the same angle that I did Game 1. I also publish an email newsletter about baseball, which you can find out more about at penningbull.com, P-E-N-N-I-N-G-B-U-L-L.com. We'll see you out there.